If you can, turn to the book of Proverbs, right in the middle of your Bible, and we're going to take just about 20 minutes or so and uh, look at Proverbs. We're going to be in a, a series from now through the end of the year. We're going to kind of jump into the book of Proverbs and, and, and just camp there for a while. We're going to kind of pick out several different themes that emerge in the book of Proverbs uh, and have an opportunity to kind of speak to those and and I'm kind of excited. I, uh, I'm, I'm around every Sunday from now through the end of the year in, in so like seven weeks. So if you guys, if you guys are going to get really... So I need a time-lapse video of that. And then in about three weeks, I want to like juxtapose it to where you guys are like, really? It's can again. <laughs> when are we going to get a guest speaker? Um, but, uh, but so I'm, I'm, kind of, I'm kind of excited about this because... What Proverbs gives us the chance to do is to jump into a conversation that I think is so simple that, that, that oftentimes we miss it. Uh, it's so simple that oftentimes we miss it. And so if you've got the book of Proverbs, let's just begin chapter 1, verse 1, and I want to read this first chunk, and then we'll kind of discuss this, frame it a little bit, and then we've got something special and different for you this morning that we've never done. Uh, and I'm kind of looking forward to But in, in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 1, it says this. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, for attaining wisdom and discipline, for understanding words of insight, for acquiring a disciplined and prudent life, doing what is right and just and fair, for giving prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the young, and let the wise listen and add to their learning and let the discerning get guidance for understanding Proverbs and parables, the sayings and riddles of the wise. For the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. So what emerges right from the beginning here when we look at Proverbs is a really interesting thing that centers on, I think, uh, this idea of Discipline. It begins with saying, uh, for attaining wisdom and discipline, in verse 2, for understanding words of insight, verse 3, for acquiring a disciplined and prudent life. And then it ends with, fools despise wisdom and discipline. So what it really centers on here is, is discipline, which is an interesting word in English, right? Discipline in English we tend to use is this negative kind of constraining kind of idea. It, it's not for me because I've, I've graduated high school. I've graduated out from my parents' home. I'm, I'm free to be. I'm free to move around the cabin. I'm free to kind of create my own life. And so discipline has everything to do with kind of constraining that or inhibiting that. And that's just so antithetical to the way we approach life in America. I, I, I've probably said this like four or five times in the last five years, but there's something really interesting underneath the American psyche and mindset. There's, there's two kind of philosophical paradigms that really undergird American thinking, whether we know it or not. One is America's only kind of contribution to philosophy, which is American pragmatism. And pragmatism is... Uh, when you go back to William James and Oliver Wendell Holmes and that whole crew coming out of Boston right after the Civil War was really this idea that 
what we thought we knew about objective truth, universal truth, truth does, that, that, that does not change, that is the same for everyone and every place and every time, that, that what we thought about absolutes we're not so sure about anymore. And so how do we as a country come together? Because these were leading thinkers in the country. Oliver Wendell Holmes went on to be a Supreme Court Chief Justice, um, one of the longest sitting uh, Supreme Court justices in the country, and, and then later John Dewey and his influence on the education system. But these are shapers of American policy, and they're saying, how do, we, how do we craft this if we don't have an absolute standard that everybody can agree to? And American pragmatism, if you really want to kind of boil it down, it's a lot like the word says. It's, it's how do we find what works? How do we find the political correct thing? How do we find... The, the majority? How do we find what uh, the majority of us can agree to or what's going to lead to the greatest peace and harmony and agreement so that as we steer our way forward and evolve truth, uh, we won't have wars like we did with the Civil War. Oliver Wendell Holmes was shot three times in the Civil War and had a belief when he went into it as an abolitionist, that there was an absolute standard of right and wrong that he was fighting for. Darwin's origin of the species shows up, and he sees all this carnage of the Civil War, and he begins to go, I don't know anymore whether there, there are these absolute truths of, of equality or not, these absolute standards, and look what that kind of absolute belief leads to, 600,000 people dead. And so he says, I don't know that these kind of absolute thoughts are the way to go because when you have these black and white kind of, kind of um, ideas that just go on and on, sooner or later you're going to come to blows over it. Isn't there a way to kind of find the middle and steer the course that way by being pragmatic? Does that make sense? I mean, we getting that? Existentialism, the way it came to be framed by the French thinkers in, in, in the middle of... of kind of uh, this past century, after the aftermath of several world wars, was really saying something similar, but a lot less at a, a policy-making thing, much more at an individual expression level. And what basically is being said by existentialism is, is what we, we always heard was that essence precedes existence. Essence precedes existence, meaning what you are as a human made in the image of God as a male or as a female is going to lead into and shape and dictate who you become as you walk through life, your existence, the choices you make. And the, Fred, the French existentialists were atheists, uh, you know, strongly avowed atheists, and they flipped that on its head and said, no, existence precedes essence. The decisions you make, the choices you make, the desires that you choose to follow will shape who you essentially become and are and were meant to be. In other words, you will create your own essence. Does that make sense? So there is no category, there are no kind of universal thoughts to who you should be. You need to go out there and use your individual freedom to make choices, to experiment, 
to try things and to kind of um, birth who you, out of all these millions and billions of people, are going to become your own unique snowflake. You're going to be, a, you know, I don't know. I could go, I could go on with that. But you know, you know what I'm saying with that? Has any, does that ring true to anybody? You ever picked up that message somewhere along the way? Well, if there's no essence, there's no ought. There's no right. And if there's no ought, and if there's no right, then there's no discipline. Or if there is discipline, it's just an encumbrance that you have to get out from behind or overcome so that you can be unencumbered in your pursuit of decision-making where you express yourself and begin to try to, to, try to create who you're going to become and what you really are. Does that make sense? So discipline in the American psyche is a completely, at least at the adult level, um, challenging concept, difficult concept. And so um, when we come to the book of Proverbs, we were confronted right away that, hey, here's this book right in the middle of the Bible, and it's for attaining wisdom and discipline. And, and not only that, but if we despise wisdom and discipline, we're foolish. We're spurning something that ought to be. We're spurning wise or true or pragmatic sayings. These sayings that, that have a role or a value in bringing about good in our life, a different kind of pragmatism. And we, we get hit right away with, are we going to kind of emerge with this pragmatic existentialist thinking that's set against this kind of discipline or wisdom? Or are we going to kind of surrender this and say, I'm going to submit to Scripture, to truth, to God, to God's plan for my life, to the idea that I'm made in His image that puts categories or boundaries that I can't cross into my, into my life or my thinking or my path uh, or, or the whole kind of game that's going on? Am I going to reject this and submit to this and, and by doing so have a fear of the Lord? In other words, God is above me and I'm surrendering and submitting to that. He's bigger than I am. I'm not the master of my own domain. I'm not the, the chief architect of shaping who I'm going to become. But in some sense, the goal or the program is not to take a white piece of paper and, and draw up myself, my ideal self, but to find the railroad tracks that I'm supposed to put myself onto as I follow and submit and surrender and in doing so, begin to discern and understand God's plan for my life. Do you see that those are two radically different, diametrically opposed programs? I, uh, I have a friend, Eugene Cho, um, who put out a tweet yesterday. I look at tweets like once every week and a half. And uh, I was... Uh, I was waiting to go to the airport to pick up a friend that you'll meet in a little bit. So I was, I was flipping through my phone, I was, and there was this tweet by Eugene. And uh, I loved it. And, and uh, Eugene's a pastor in Seattle. And he said, the problem with American Christians, the problem with, uh, the, with, with Christians in the American church, I don't know how he began it, was that we 
act as guests, that we always act as guests when we should be, uh, be playing the host. We always act as guests when we should be playing the host. Does that, does that make sense? He said it a lot better. You can, you can at Eugene Cho. You can go, you can go find it. Um, he was putting his finger on something that I think is really profound. We're passive. We tend to be passive connoisseurs or critiques of what happens at church as a disinterested guest that, that has a degree of separation where we can kind of go wherever we want with it, but we're not owning it or engaged with it. And in doing so, we actually treat church or preaching or worship or whatever it is, we can so easily fold that into the game of existentialist Christianity. I'm looking for things I can pluck or that I like or that I'm a connoisseur of that I can fold into um, this this project of creating myself the way, the way I want to create myself. And so I'm looking for nuggets that I like. I'm looking for the things that resonate. And then I'm going to grab those. I'm going to fold those in. And if I don't like something, or if I disagree with something, or if, if it offends me, because you know I'm a guest. You should, you should be treating me a certain way. I'm going to reject it easily and quickly and keep it at an arm's distance because it, it doesn't fit with my program. It doesn't fit with what I'm doing here, with, with what's going on. And, and so I think that there's this, this battle we're going to have to wrestle with as we jump into Proverbs, which really is how are we willing to look at the word or the concept discipline? How are we willing to look at, wrestle with, absorb, respond to the concept of discipline? Yesterday, I watched eight hours of college football. <laughs> uh, the, the, when I get stressed, um, this is something new, I turn, next Sunday, I turn 40, um, and this is something new, I don't know that it, it, I don't know the health ramifications of it, but when I get stressed, I now have these veins that, that, that really jet out. Um, I don't have much hair covering it, I can see, my wife, points them out. When I get stressed, these veins jump out. Um, yesterday, when I was driving to the airport at 8.30, there were veins popping out of my head. My eyeballs were sore. I, like my shirt was drenched with sweat. Anyone else watch the Oregon game? I, I, I swear I needed to be put on bed rest after that game. <laughs> it, was, it was the most exhausting thing I've, I've done in a whole... In a, I mean, seriously... I mean, is, did anyone else, someone else watch it, right? <laughs> and I'm not even a Ducks fan, right? Um, it's, it was exhausting. And uh, I, I, was, I was explaining to my kids the definition of bandwagon fan because I'm, I'm going to become one, I decided. Um, and, uh, and that's cool. It's cool. Um, so here's the thing. Anyone else watch that game? Somewhere along the line, the announcers for that game spoke of Oregon, Alabama, and Kansas State. I mean, multiple times comparing these three, three schools that are vying for kind of 
uh, jockeying for position in the BCS, right? Standings in the BCS. Uh, referred to all of these programs as being incredibly disciplined. See, half of you guys didn't watch the football game, but you're just smarter than other people in here. <laughs> I know where you're going. So, over and over and over again. And it was so much that I kind of began to think about it. And, I, and I, I don't know if you ever do this when, especially when you're watching Chip Kelly. I don't know if you've ever done this, but I begin to try to think of how good of a football coach I would have made. I, I think I would have made a great one. Barring the fact that I'm like 5'10", never played football, not athletic, um, I think I would have made a good football coach. And I started, like, so I'm playing the game I always play, like, and I'm like, wow, if I was building a football team, you know, what would I do? And I'm like, you know what? They're right. Everyone on these teams, like, every position, they know what they're doing. They know what they're supposed to do. They're disciplined. And, like, over the course of a game, that makes all the difference. And I'm like, that's amazing. And I started going, wow, there's something about a college football team that's disciplined and then all of a sudden I, I realized the book I picked to go along with this series is a Eugene Peterson book. It's not on the book of Proverbs. It's on, it's on the Psalms of Ascent, same, same area of the Bible. And the name of the book is, uh, Eugene Peterson stole it from Nietzsche, which is hilarious. But the, the name of the book is A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. And I started going, you know, there's something, you know, maybe all these things are coalescing. That it really is a long obedience in the same direction. It's understanding the value or the role of discipline in the Christian life. And I think there's something that we've missed about our relationship with God where we expect pleasure along the way if we're walking with God. And I don't, absolutely don't think that's the way it works. I think we're promised two things in our, our submission to and our walking with God. We're promised his presence, which brings a, a measure of joy that sustains. It's a state of being. It doesn't mean that everything's great in your life, but, but, but there's a deep and abiding joy. Paul in, in Philippians, you know, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. There are three forms of the word joy. Joy. Enjoy, which literally means to take in joy. And then there's rejoice, which is manifesting or making, no, uh, making known your joy. See how those work together? Joy, enjoy, and rejoice. You can only rejoice if you have the joy. Make known the joy that you have. And so it's fascinating. Paul's saying rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice because the presence of God that's promised to us allows us to have a deep and abiding joy such that we can rejoice in the Lord always. Does that make sense? It's amazing how that works, right? So we're promised the presence of God, and then we're promised that when we follow God, we're, He goes in front of us, right? It's like the pillar of fire or the cloud of smoke with the Israelites. He goes in front of us, and we submit to and we follow, and there's a purpose, even if we don't know it, even if we don't understand it, even if we can't discern it, it's the right place to be because there's a purpose to following God. And so 
we have his presence, and we know that some, somehow, some way, where we're going to arrive someday is the right place. In, in the case of the Israelites, it was the promised land. In the case of the prophets that never even got to see the value of what they were prophesying about, it's, it's heaven or it's going and being in the direct presence of God. But I, I want to liken it for our purposes as going on vacation with my four kids. Okay, so when we drive, it's usually south, San Francisco or L.A. or something like that, right? There are two things when you're in the whites Macar going on vacation that you're promised. You're promised the relationship, the fellowship, the presence of mom and dad. You get that. You're promised that. And you're also promised a destination. You get the joy of family and together and then you get the idea that someday, somewhere, somehow, whatever, we're going to arrive somewhere that's good. Now, what begins to happen along the way is if my, my kids are thoroughly American, and so somewhere along the way, they begin to, to go into a, uh, a pleasure crisis, like they, um, withdrawal, like pleasure, direct stimulus, pleasure, withdrawal. And they, they begin to um, ask questions like, are we there yet? How much longer till we're there? Can I eat? Um, can, I, can I watch a movie? Can I, you know, I mean, because I need pleasure along the journey. That's our default. And that begins to obscure the value of the presence uh, or the relationality of the family, and it also begins to hijack the idea that this is a journey toward a destination to come, and that the real joy or the real pleasure is going to be when we arrive in that destination. And so this, this craving for pleasure begins to create a crisis that, that, that makes the conversation in our head one of not surrendering, being patient, being disciplined, waiting on persevering, enduring, trusting, having faith, all of those things go out the window and it's like, no, I need, and I need it now because I can't stand this any longer. And so I think we have the whole equation messed up. And so I think we're promised the presence of God which leads to deep abiding joy wherefore we can rejoice even in the journey and we're promised that when we follow God, there's a logic to it. There's a destination that we can trust in, wait for, or believe in. We set our eyes ahead, right? That's the program. And if we don't understand that program, we're going to take the detours or the off-ramps. The worst hotel we've ever stayed in, I don't know, um, my sister's a lawyer. She, would, she could, I... Didn't ask her ahead of time, so I don't understand how libel laws work. But at the America's Best Value Inn in Vacaville, we had the worst hotel experience of our life of unmade and reused sheets. And, and then to top it off the next morning when I, I, I thought, well, this is going to buy me a discount. The manager, who, who obviously didn't go through 
the kinds of customer service training that, that I did when I was like 15 and working in retail. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, what I mean by that is I thought that was like standard process no matter what kind of retail you work in. Uh, he argued that he came in at 1 in the morning and changed the sheets for us. So he'd already taken care of us. Anyways, I'm, I'm on a tangent now. Um, worst hotel experience of our life, Vacaville. It's on the way to San Francisco. Okay. Do you understand that when you do not surrender to discipline in the spiritual life, you will end up spending your life in Vacaville. <laughs> that is what it boils down to. It's, a, it's an off-ramp that promises much. It, you think there's going to be an in and out there, but it's actually the next exit up. <laughs> I, I know this. You think I've gotten back into civilization after going through who knows where outside of Sacramento, I don't know, you know what I mean? And you're like, I'm, I'm finally headed and pointed towards San Francisco. It's so close, I can, I can sense it. Napa Valley is just right up ahead. This is wonderful. I need to pull over and have good, I, I need this, not that. And in, in the spiritual life, when we think we need this now, instead of waiting, we spend our life in Vacaville. God does not, we're under a delusion that God will give us specific instructions to everything at every moment. I mean, I'll, I'll be honest with you because I've been in this delusion at some point, okay? We're really enamored with ourselves and our own bigness in the grand scheme of things. And so we think God should tell us the exact thing that we need to do in every situation, every day. And if he, if he only would or did, we, we would obey it. Right? But he, he didn't. And so, you know, I, is it really my fault, the choices I'm making? And I started thinking about this when I was driving to the airport yesterday after I realized the whole discipline thing with the whole, all the football teams. I was like, this is what it would be like. It would be like a lineman saying, well, coach, um, you didn't tell me to listen to the snap count on that play. You didn't tell me to, like, um, move my feet in order to, to block the guy I was blocking. You didn't tell me to. Like, there are, are certain things that a, a disciplined player does because it's par for the course. It's a part of the program. It's a part of the game. And the coach isn't going to tell you on every play that you need to listen for the snap count or that you need to pay attention to what the defense is doing or that you need to move your feet and not just move your arms. There's, there's basic things that you learn from peewee football all the way on up that you do when you train during the week. There, there are basic disciplines that, that are a part of the game that the coach doesn't tell you every single play. And if you forget that, it's not the coach's fault. 
It's you were being undisciplined. You didn't have your, it's the phrase, you didn't have your head in the game. You weren't really paying attention. You weren't really focused. You, you didn't really care. And the book of Proverbs lays out for us the basic ground rules, the basic structure, the basic disciplines, the basic wisdom, the basic things of knowledge, the essence of how God has created the world to work, men and women to work, communities to work, relationship to work. It has to do with what is right and what is just and what is fair. See, justice isn't just sending $30 a month um, overseas. Justice is about all of your relationships. Fairness is about all of our relationships, and it's the fabric of community that we live in, in church, in our families, in this community of Bend, Oregon, as a country, with other countries, that, that there are basic parameters and guidelines and things that God thinks about with regard to how we should live and act and move and operate. And the book of Proverbs is the basic that way, and we learn it, and God's not going to tell you all the time, don't go cheat. He's not going to tell you all the time that business should be fair, that your scale should be equal, because you should know that. God's not going to always tell you every day the things that you should already know, that you do already know, that you should be kind of armed to obey or believe in. Those are the basic disciplines of what it means to live a godly or God-fearing life. And I really honestly believe that sometimes we take... And discipline and the disciplines of a godly life are just so simple or basic or, or we, don't, we don't engage them that we act like the, the person that wants the coach to tell us on every play, talk directly to us, not to the team as a whole, but we're, we're so entitled, talk directly to me and tell me everything I should do. I'll do it if you do that. And we, in doing so, we're, there's an arrogance of spurning Discipline and wisdom and insight and knowledge and maturity that just that really is, is funky. And so why, why this Proverbs series? Because we need to fill ourselves with the basics. We need to fill ourselves with discipline that's good and that keeps us on track, that we might follow God and walk in the right footsteps that we would enjoy his presence along the way and trust that there is a place or a destination and that we don't have to take off-ramps or, or detours or exits, but we wait, we endure, we persevere, and we have patience along the way. Does that make sense? The greatest thing that ever happened in my life, my spiritual life, top three, because I, I really don't know which is the greatest, top five, I don't know, top ten, whatever, it's really significant for me, was I heard something about Billy Graham, and I didn't realize that Billy Graham's generation, it was like something that everybody did. I thought it was Billy Graham. I was like, this guy's like Jesus and then Billy Graham, and if he did it, I should do it. It was when I was an early Christian. And Billy Graham read a chapter of Proverbs every day in five Psalms. And I guess this was a big discipline somewhere along the way in Christianity. So I started doing that. Chapter of Proverbs a day, five Psalms. For two years I did this. It revolutionized my life. It taught, it, I couldn't escape the framework of logic and wisdom or discernment that was in my head from those words. Not, not to me. I'm not wise. But that filling me and then informing me 
as I moved forward in life. I think that we don't, as Christians, read our Bibles as much anymore. And we need to. And we don't always go to Proverbs anymore and deal with things of discipline and maturity. We want to go right to the big answers. God, tell me right now what your will is for my life. Well, if we want to know what God's will is for our life, there's a vast, big, broad chunk of his will that's available to us at all times. It's the discernment and the wisdom and the essence of what he designed for this life. And it sits right in this book of Proverbs, and, it, and it's laced all throughout the whole book of the Bible. So that's what we're going to do. So I don't know. I'm, I'm jazzed on that. Um, I hope you guys will be jazzed on that. I want to read, right before I call up our, our guest, I want to read Eugene Peterson's intro to the book of Proverbs. So it's been a while since I picked up the message, but that... That translation of the Bible revolutionized, I don't know, maybe that's like number 15. I got I don't know what, it had an impact somewhere along the way on the scale of impact. Not for the translation he did, but for the intros to the books of the Bible. You have got to buy a copy of the message and read the introductions to the books. Unbelievable. It, it, I mean, the way he did it, like the, the introduction to the book of Habakkuk, Life-changing. Seriously, life-changing. Mind blown. Um, Here's Proverbs. Many people think that what's written in the Bible has mostly to do with getting people into heaven, getting right with God, saving their eternal souls. It does have to do with that, of course, but not mostly. It is equally concerned with living on this earth, living well, living in robust sanity. In our scriptures, heaven is not the primary concern to which earth is a tag-along afterthought on earth as it is in heaven, in Jesus' prayer. Wisdom is the biblical term for this on earth as it is in heaven, everyday living. Wisdom is the art of living skillfully in whatever actual conditions we find ourselves. It has virtually nothing to do with information as such, with knowledge as such. A college degree is no certification of wisdom, nor is it primarily concerned with keeping us out of moral mud puddles although it does have a profound moral effect upon us. Wisdom has to do with becoming skillful in honoring our parents and raising our children, handling our money and conducting our sexual lives, going to work and exercising leadership, using words well and treating friends kindly, eating and drinking healthily, cultivating emotions within ourselves and attitudes towards others that make for peace. Threaded through all of these items is the insistence that the way we think of and respond to God is the most practical thing we do. In matters of everyday practicality, nothing, absolutely nothing, takes precedence over God. Proverbs concentrates on these concerns more than any other book in the Bible. Attention to the here and now is everywhere present in the stories and legislation, the prayers and the sermons that are spread over the thousands of pages of the Bible. So I hope you'll look forward with me to this series we're going to do on Proverbs from now through the end of the year. Um, I would consult you to, to begin reading a chapter of Proverbs a day and five Psalms a day. I dare you to do it. Um, and then we're going to do this as an all-church book read, Eugene Peterson's uh, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, which you can get at the book table right after church.